This is Contact Mike. Hello. Nice to see you, Doe. It's June. It's June. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision, and well, well contact. contact. Contact Mike is a monthly podcast by Sarah Walker. I'm not a manic pixie dream girl. I play tax. And Flo Kilpatrick. Oh, I just noticed that massive penis stuck to the wall. It's produced by Kieran Ruffles. Oh man, it's long. And it's going to start and it's going to start. Now. Chapter one. This month, the Contact Mic team is much more spread out than usual. We're used to being across the desk from each other, but right now we're across the whole world. This month in your world, in Adelaide, my niece and I talked about controlled burnings. First it made the plants grow. We were colouring in at the time. You can hear the pencils. Yeah, I feel scared if it does. Because sometimes fire is quite dangerous. Sometimes, yeah. But you know, we have a fire in our house at night sometimes, and that's not dangerous. No, because it's in the fireplace. It's in the fireplace. It stays exactly where it's meant to. And those fires in the bush, they stay exactly where they're meant to as well. But what if they suddenly explode everywhere? Well, then the men and women who fight fires, they would come and look after it and they'd put it out. With lots of hoses and water. With lots of hoses and water and they'd make sure that everyone was as safe as possible. Safe as they could be. I'm just going to go and check something, my darling. Can you see here the microphone is recording in front of you? Okay. Is there a secret you want to tell the microphone while I'm away? Microphone. Imagine when you're as old as you can get. Imagine when you're dead. Microphone, imagine when you're dead. Did you tell the secret? Yeah. Oh, that's good. I told the microphone, imagine when you're dead. Why did you ask the microphone to imagine when it was dead? Because I wanted to know that it will one day be dead. Oh. And then we went back to colouring dinosaurs. There you go. Thank you. Do you want to colour in this last bit of its spine with the blue as well? Yep. I'd love to. Dear Fleur and Sarah, Someone told my travelling companion, Fergs, on a previous visit that Manila is dirty but cool. I guess that's their version of Berlin's poor but sexy. We got off our red-eye flight from Kuala Lumpur at 4am, found our way to the centrally located hostel in a entertainment district, and promptly crashed, setting up our body clocks for what has been mostly a nocturnal pattern. We played our first show that night, and I made some of the new friends who would be my people for my time here. The next night we took an Uber for an hour and 25 minutes to see a Melbourne theatre maker perform a solo show in a packed little restaurant bar. And I saw a local performer who had come to Melbourne for a show two years before. When I said I had seen him and remembered the name of the show to him, he was surprised. I said to him, well, you know, it's a big planet but it's still a small world. 
When I messaged a friend saying I was seeing our mutual acquaintance perform in a city thousands of clicks from where we had all met, her message was simple. Wow. Tell him I love him. And I did. And he smiled. Barely a day later, I was sharing the back seat of an SUV with a new friend on another of the seemingly interminable car trips that have defined the texture of this city for me. And we got to talking about Melbourne. She said she'd met someone from there when they were both living in Manchester. And of course, it turned out I knew him too. Big planet, small world. And when I messaged him to say who I was with and where, his response was simple. Wow. Tell her I love her. And I did. And she smiled. Travelling and making new friends. The people that I will talk about when I bump into their mutual acquaintances in some as yet unknown third location. Has made me think all the more of the people I would send that message to. And how sometimes it takes an agent of chance to mediate that simple, essential message. Tell him I love him. Tell her I love her. On my last night here, I will not only perform myself, but I will go to see a contemporary dance show at the National Cultural Centre. You see, I recognised the European choreographer at the packed little restaurant bar. We'd met briefly in the foyer of a dance venue in Melbourne and had mutual friends. We exchanged emails, and the rest is, well, travel, big planet, small world. Dear Fleur and Kieran, it's the 18th of June, and I have a cold. I'm in Vienna. It's beautiful here. Walking in from the station, I had the sudden realisation that the cities I've been imagining when I read Italo Calvino novels, they're all here. They're all Vienna, and I never knew it. My brain built this city from those words, and now I'm walking through it, and it feels strange and dreamlike. Vienna's full of art and architecture and history, but what it doesn't seem to be full of is people. I've been walking around these streets for days, and even though there are huge multi-storey apartment buildings everywhere, there doesn't seem to be anyone in them. I can't shake the feeling that the whole city is a facade, that there's nothing behind those windows at all. I was sitting in the museum's quarter this evening, and I heard some music outside. And I walked through an archway and round a corner, and I found where all the people in Vienna were. They were on the street. Tens of thousands of them holding balloons and rainbow flags, and I realised that I'd stumbled into the biggest pride march I've ever seen. Everyone was going in the same direction, so I just started walking with them, and everyone was smiling. People were dancing and singing and kissing and laughing and just beaming at one another. Even the family I passed who were all wearing t-shirts saying, I love Jesus, were smiling. At one point, I was lost in my own thoughts, looking at all the signs saying, We are Orlando, we are Orlando. And someone took my hand. I looked up, and this beautiful, sleepy-eyed boy pulled me up onto the tray of a truck, put his arms around me, and just cuddled me. He kissed the palm of my hand, and I wished him a beautiful day, and vanished back into the smiling crowd as the setting sun lit up all the rainbow flags so that they glowed gold. 
Chapter 2. So I was on the stage getting my doctorate at Monash and one of my supervisors was uh, behind me. And this person leaned over and said to her, how on earth does someone go from being a minister to writing on eroticism? And she leans over to him and says, joyfully. <laughs> I met Mark at Monash University Student Theatre about eight years ago. The theatre tends to attract outcasts, people who are a little lost and are looking to be found, and so it was with Mark. But he wasn't just a kid who'd been a nerd at school. He was an ex-minister who'd just relinquished his faith in God. Mark doesn't do anything halfway. He's gone on to be running a whole cultural precinct in Alice Springs. But I remember this man standing on stage in a state of childlike wonder, just bursting with energy and life and discovery of new things. And the very first thing I got to do was um, be a dog for um, Danny Delahunty, actually. So here I'm bounding around this stage like a dog and I started crying and it was just like my heart exploded. And it was like, what is this? This is insane. What on earth is this? This presence of being in the present moment when so much of my experience had been deferring the present to a never-coming future. To understand this moment, the man, Mark, bounding about the theatre in tears, we need to return to the child, Mark, a child who was hurting. When I was a kid, around 12 years of age, my parents broke up. And I think, as many kids do at times, you internalise it and suddenly it's all about you. I was the eldest of four boys. And for some reason, I just thought it must be my fault, what's going on with my parents. And first year of high school, religious education class was being held. And one of the people running that was a, a minister from a particular right-wing kind of church who said, everyone in this class right now is a dirty, rotten sinner and you all deserve to burn in hell. And you're like, I am there. <laughs> you are speaking to me. <laughs> I did feel that, though. I felt so terrible that I had somehow done something. But they said, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll have everlasting life. I thought, oh, that sounds good. Mark threw himself into the church. He ate up sin, sacrifice and salvation. In his late teens, he did leave the church for about a year. But then a friend OD'd and he returned to the refuge of religion. He trained as a minister. I think he felt called and perhaps comforted. Who was that God that you knew then? The God that I was introduced to, I guess, as a 12-year-old was male, absolutely male, in the sky, and was a being that began everything, controlled everything, and dealt out punishment for anyone that didn't go down the party line, which in this case was a very, very strict subset of the Christian faith. So it's fundamentalist Baptist, unless you believe that exact doctrine in the exact way, you'd spend eternity in hell. So other Christians, eternity in hell. Any other religion, eternity in hell. Everyone except this tiny, tiny subset would end up in hell. And yet they believed that was a God of love. <laughs> Mark married a godly woman, Katrina. She was from Queensland. They'd met at Sydney Bible College. They were both 21. So I didn't know her, basically, uh, in many, many ways. And our wedding day, uh, we'd only kissed once before then because we were keeping ourselves from marriage and all those kind of things within that fundamentalist tradition. They went for a walk on her parents' property and, standing in a paddock, they tried it out. A kiss. A kiss to be kissed before the eyes of God and the congregation. 
The kiss was interesting because the reason we kissed is because she didn't want the first kiss to look funny. So she said, let's, let's try it out first. And so we went for a Oh, that's walk. so hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a lot of um, passion or desire or anything around the kiss. How do you remember your wedding? The wedding was all about the gospel. It was all about the story. It was all about Jesus. So it was all about how husband and wife reflect Jesus and the church and that love between Jesus and the church must be reflected in this couple that's been brought together. And because I was also a minister, it was even more heightened. Then we married and you know the white dress, the flowing hair, all that sort of stuff. But it was all about you know, massive amounts of Bible verses were read. A sermon was given that lasted 40 minutes to an hour, I think, if I remember rightly. My brother actually fainted as one of the groomsmen, because it went for so long and it was so hot. It was very hot, no air conditioning in the church, and he actually fainted. Now, with this godly woman at his side, Mark became a minister. I learnt Greek and Hebrew so I could translate the scriptures from the original languages. I preached over a thousand sermons across the ten years. Several years and two children in, the family moved to Townsville to plant a church. The Conservative Baptists of Townsville were thrilled. But after only a few months, things began to feel strange there. When Mark was offered a chance to finish his degree in West Virginia, he accepted it. He had a lot of questions and needed distance from Australia to work out what he believed. So I told the elders of the church what I was going to do. They weren't too happy about this because they believed I was God's chosen person that had come from Sydney for them in Townsville. Were very upset. And all my things are packed up by now. They're on their way down to Sydney. I'm about to jump into the van with my wife and two kids and as I'm leaving the elders said to me Mark we hope God kills your wife and children oh my god because you were leaving them last thing I heard last time I've ever been in Townsville was that moment and I got in the van and I drove out and so I've never been back to Townsville since oh my goodness <laughs> holy shit and um, then I ended up in America and it was worse West Virginia was wow that was just the worst place I could have gone in some ways, but the best in others. That was hyper-fundamentalist space. I mean, West Virginia's insane. I was called a heretic from the pulpit because I didn't hold the exact doctrinal view, which had to do with the time that Jesus would come back within the seven-year period of hell on earth. You had to believe he comes back at the end of the seven years, not three and a half years or not at the beginning. That's specific, right? And all I was saying was that maybe it's possible that people could believe those other two options. That's, that was my heresy at the time. But it was more than that. As part of the college's outreach work, Mark was stationed at a family planning clinic. And as various women came into that clinic, I was giving them every option that there was. Super right-wing religious colleges aren't massively keen on their ministers being pro-choice. I was the devil at this point, as far as they were concerned. Mark and his family returned to Australia and he just sort of slipped further and further to the left. He preached at a reformed church, then the Uniting Church. Now, if you're not all over your spectrum of churches and their political leanings, the Uniting Church is about as far left as you can get. So Mark's faith has brought him right to the brink, the extreme opposite end of the spectrum to where he started as a minister. And then one day he wakes up and realises that he's talking like an agnostic. At the very end, even within the Uniting Church, I did, I think, four funerals because the congregation I was looking after in Geelong was quite elderly. 
during that time, that pastoral care with these people, they would die and then I'd do the funeral for them. But then I started to have a real issue because I couldn't, when I was doing the sermon and all the other things you need to do, I didn't believe anymore. This is where it really started to hit. After one of the funerals, I went back the next day to the grave and I I can't remember the gentleman's name now, but I was just talking to, to him. I said, look, I don't know if everything that was said yesterday is true or not. I know you believed it. What's about to happen is your body over time will decay and you will go on in that sense as you are reworked into other parts of this amazing thing called life. Or there's some God thing out there that I just don't really believe in anymore. But whatever the case, I just wanted to honour that and tell you that today. These transitions don't happen fast, but most people who lose their faith will talk about one defining moment, a moment when they actually articulated their terrifying doubts to themselves. Mark's moment came in a paddock, another paddock, outside of Melbourne. He was walking and he was talking to himself because for the first time in his life, he didn't have God to talk to. Saying, okay, well, there is no God, okay, there is no future out there, there's nothing, everything I've believed is a lie, everything my entire existence has been around is a lie. All I've got is now. It's like, hmm, maybe that's fucking okay. But then the real work started. And the unravelling that happened after that was pretty intense for quite some time. Where was your wife in this? I think her whole life journey was always about having kids. That's what she wanted to do. And again, very patriarchal system. So you follow the man. If the man's going in a certain way, you follow your husband in wherever he goes. But she had to draw the line somewhere. Now that God was gone and there was no physical intimacy, there was nothing there that was actually holding us together as people, except that there was a care for each other. I didn't know how to broach it. I had no idea how to talk to her about what was going on and that I felt that I needed to explore some things I'd never explored in my life before and that sexuality was actually a big one of those and what does that mean for us and what are we going to do? So there was a photo on the mantelpiece and every year we would take a photo of the family. Very patriarchal, very centre, sort of atomic kind of sense of the family. And early on, I even had a Bible in my hand. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> right. You see the the words, fifth Holy member Bible, of the family, right? the good it was, Lord. <laughs> it was the, that kind of stuff early on. That's how much I was in it back then. That's why it's so hard to even see myself back there sometimes. <laughs> so I was looking at this photo, and I went up to it, and with a black texter, put a cross through my face, and then left it there so she could see it. And that became the symbol for which we then talked about that night, lying next to each other in bed. So they part, and they stay friends for a while, and they put the kids first. They work really hard at that, but then Katrina moves the kids back to Queensland to be closer to her family, and Mark is just really alone. For the first time since he was 12, really. No family, no God, no certainty. Then one day, walking around the campus centre at Monash, he walks down a corridor and he sees a notice saying, auditions, sign up here. And so he did. So when you walked into student theatre, where was your faith at? So by that time, the collapse really had come. So by that time, I'd already walked around that oval and said goodbye to God in in many ways, Uh, entered into the potential madness that I thought I was entering into, found that it wasn't quite as dark as I thought it was going to be. Look... We both came through the same student theatre, and this probably isn't specific to Monash, but student theatres are pretty full-on places. They're intense environments emotionally and sexually. 
think parties with pirates parody porn on the TV and people intruding into your conversation every five minutes to declare, "Uh, I have to kiss everyone at this party. Can I kiss you? Now, think of being a former minister, newly single at those parties. Uh, Remarkable, actually. Absolutely remarkable. Yes, there is a lot of debauched space or incestuous space, just in terms of, you know, when you are involved in a production, you get so close so quickly and you're not ready yet for what's going on, or I wasn't anyway, for the emotional attachments that are going on all the time. I remember being in this van with you during this time and you just, like, all these words just coming out of your face for about an hour and a half where you were just like, I'd... I'm just feeling so much. There's so much happening to me and it's so amazing and confusing and kind of terrifying, but I just feel so alive. Yeah, it was very alive, but it was too much. And that where you heard me, all those words coming out of my mouth is probably because it was just too much for me to handle. Mm -hmm. That suddenly for all these years, there's all this repression and stopping the flow of life happening because you defer it to the future, Mm -hmm. which means you don't take responsibility for your own life or anyone else really to now have the opportunity to take responsibility, have the opportunity to actually enjoy life and all these experiences that are coming at you is an amazing thing. You talked before about spirituality being a way of finding deeper meaning. What is the source of deeper meaning in your life now? I think it's connection. It's connection, but connection has different ways. So for me, living in Alice Springs now, I will drive out along the McDonald Ranges And the very first time I did it, when I first arrived, I found my hand was across my mouth the whole time. It's really bizarre. Like, what am I hand doing here? It's like almost an involuntary movement. And it was because I was in such awe of the majesty of those rangers. And they are amazing. If you've ever seen them before, they just roll one after the other and they change color depending on the time of day. And there is a majesty to that natural space. And these words, interestingly, majesty are often used in the God construct, right? So that's depth of meaning for me. That's the natural connection, but it could be a piece of art, it could be a book, it could be a film. I wonder if you could talk a bit to how your understanding of death has changed in the last 15 years. So I always believed that if I was going to die, it's because it was God's time and he was going to make sure everything was going to be okay. When it had finally fallen away, it became a really different situation because here I'd be in a plane that was like, wow, this thing goes down, that's it. There's nothing more after this for me. And I don't know if I'm ready for that now. That that doesn't sound like a very good proposition. So fear started to come into play with death and the sense of my own mortality for the first time facing it that could have been a blinking out of existence. Now not believing in this heaven or afterlife, it changes everything. Death is final I and mean, we know that, but that finality is something that gives life even more joy or more brightness or more reality or more life. The Greeks used to talk about the problem with the gods is they don't die, which is why they would rather be human (laughs) or envy humanity because the fact that humans die gives us a sense of vitality in life. Is there something you would like to say or you wish someone else had said to 12-year-old you? I've thought of this a lot, actually, this kind of thing. And for me, I like where I am right now and I wouldn't be where I am right now if it wasn't for all the experiences I had. My life is full of all kinds of things, but it wouldn't be if it wasn't for those early experiences because as as dark as some of them were, they opened up many things later on. We are complex people, complex things because of all the experiences we have. So 
I don't think I would say anything to the 12 year old in some ways because the 12 year old is going to have to go through a bit of hell to explore some things and there's a richness in the tragedy and the grandeur of the human condition. Chapter 3 Did you ever go to church as a child? Well, I was at a religious school, so yeah, quite a lot. And also I was just singing in religious choirs, so Mm. I've been in a lot of church. And then my family, my extended family are religious, and we went a few times with them, but um, always in a kind of bemused way. Mm. My family were very religious when I was born. I presume that I was taken to church from a very young age. Mm. I have no memories. I actually don't know if I was christened. Yeah, wow. It's funny, christening is one of those things that secular people are still really into. Well, that's because it's kind of beautiful. Like, Mm. I've thought about this a bit before. We don't have a ceremony as secular people that's like, let's all get together and wish your baby well and Mm. say we're going to support them being a good and moral and decent human being. That's beautiful. I like to think that if I had a child and they said to me, Mum, can we go to church? I guess I'd like to think that I'd be like, yeah, absolutely, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Mm. But I think... I would find it very difficult to not be judgmental about the whole thing because I personally have come from a place of being religious and have come through it to a place where I'm not. And of course I feel superior because I feel like I've, you know, stopped believing in Santa Claus. And you were that child that said, Mum, can we, can we go to church? Yeah, when I was about, I must have been eight or nine, I just, yeah, I, I, I vaguely recall being in the car and turning to my parents and asking why we didn't go to church. My parents both have a slightly tense relationship with religion where I think they both believe in God, but both believe that God hates them. But for years we went, we went to church, years and years and years. Yeah, I was super, I was super involved. And when I was about 16 or 17, I don't have, I don't remember the moment that I stopped believing in God. I think I just sort of slowly, I sort of got over it the way you do a cold and all of a sudden I woke up and was like, Mom, so I don't, uh, as it turns out, I don't believe in God anymore. So I think maybe I don't want to go to church anymore. And I remember her kind of being a bit sort of upset with me and was like, I can't believe you've been teaching these children about something that you don't even believe in. Like you have to go, you have to go tell them. And I don't think I ever had the guts to, to speak to the woman who ran the youth group because she was lovely. I don't think I ever actually had the guts to say, I don't believe anymore. I think I was like, oh, year 12's pretty hard, so I'm not going to be able to come in very much ever again. Occasionally we'd and go fuck back. fuck you and everything you believe in. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard having this community of people and, and having to say, like, you just can't, you can't hang out with people who believe in a fundamental creative force that you don't believe in. You can't hang out with those people at church. Yeah. Like, it's just a really horrible, tense experience. My parents stopped being religious when I was, I think, about three. I've always known it was a tough experience for them leaving the church. Of course, how could it not be? Mm. But I had this conversation recently with my father and my aunt, and I said, oh, I'd love to talk to mum about it. And mm. dad said, um, it's a, it was really traumatic. She may have blocked this stuff out. And I, I, I just had this moment of clarity where I went, unconsciously I've always thought of this them leaving the church as a really positive thing because mm. it feels like such a positive thing to me. Mm. I got to grow up mm. in a way that I love. Mm. I love 
that I didn't, that they left the church before I had to battle with how I felt and work all this stuff out myself and they gave me a great sense of morality and a great sense of kindness and compassion for others mm. without telling me and everything good that is in you is about Jesus. Mm. They, they let it be about me, mm. <laughs> which just feels like such a gift that they did those really hard yards for me yeah so that I didn't have to later on myself so it was funny I just had this moment of realizing I think of this as such a good thing but actually gosh that was so hard and they lost all their friends Mm. just everyone Mm. but I was thinking of them of course during Mark's interview and thinking of them when he talked about his wife and himself not really having anything in common apart from God Mm. and just thought how lucky I was that my parents also had immense friendship Mm. and love for each other as yeah. a basis there. And it's so lucky that they both went through this transition together. Mm. You said something really beautiful before about how lonely it must have felt for Mark to have always shared a space in his head with God and then suddenly having found himself alone in his own skull. Yeah. I think that if you have always been religious, the idea of not having God's unconditional love must mm. be very frightening. Mm. Not having unconditional love. And I actually think that it's a wonderful thing that really makes us more moral, knowing that we don't have unconditional love. Knowing that, actually, that we have to there be are good some conditions on it. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would take a hell of a lot to make my family stop loving me, but, like, I could do it. <laughs> yeah. I could fuck shit up, I'm sure. Yeah, like, looking at the world in a way that's like, you have to treat people respectfully and kindly, and then they'll love you, and then yeah. they'll treat you the same way. It's a much more functional way of looking at it. I like to think that church can be a deepening of your connection and a time when people sit and stop and think about how to be a good person. Yeah. Because I've thought a lot about religion, trying to work out how I can how I can sort of see religion through the eyes of others. Mm-hmm. And that's the best thing that I've come up with. Like, oh, isn't the idea of mass and the idea of sitting there and listening to music that makes you feel so many feelings mm. and makes you reflect on your place and your smallness and your greatness all at once. Mm. That's a nice thing. It is. The thing about religion which I, I very much understand and which I think is certainly missing from contemporary society is that sense of ritual and remembering and kind of really deep thought about the place we occupy in, in the world and how we should treat the people in it. I like that idea. I like that space created for people to come together and to feel something together and to think about what it means to be human. I think that's really important and I think we don't have that mass sense of ritual in our life anymore and I think we are the poorer for it. Mm. I notice that when it comes to death as well, mm. not having traditions or rituals around death can make death much harder because yeah. there is that time when someone is dying or when they have when they are dead, when you wander around just not knowing what to do. And there are yeah. there are some religions that tell you, by the way, this is what you should eat now that this person is dead. Huh. Now you need to go for a walk around the block. And when you enter your house, you are rejoining society. Like, huh. there have been times in my life when I would have loved that amount of prescriptive certainty, yeah. certainty yeah. like, <laughs> that says those things. Mm. Like, that, that is a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's interesting um, when people die there's always a little portion of the community or the congregation or the people who are at the funeral who come and, and say they've you know they've gone to a better place they've gone to be with their husband and their father and and they've gone to be with God and they're in heaven now and they take comfort in that sentence and i was talking last night with someone about how that isn't a comforting thought 
if you're not a religious person because eternity is a terrifying concept and as far as I can understand heaven is mostly just sitting around being like gosh God's great I'm gonna bask in the love of God forever it sounds boring whereas I think it's so much more beautiful and comforting to to think of it like everything you've ever known everything you could ever possibly ever conceive of came from this singular point this tiny atomic nothingness and now it's everything and you get to just go back to being everything and being part of this huge universal explosion that'll probably eventually just come back to another point of nothingness like you get to go back to the biggest thing there could ever be and I think that's so much more comforting than being like you get to go and sit at the feet of the Lord and be like gosh he's shiny I find it kind of it rubs me the wrong way to think of that term like he's gone home she's gone home like no I've been home and I think that that undermines the pleasure that I took from being on this planet Mm. and the delight I found in friends and family and the Mm. fact that actually yeah it does suck that I'm leaving them yeah Contact Mike is a monthly podcast about people by Flo Kilpatrick and Sarah Walker produced by Kieran Ruffles you can find us at contactmikepodcast.com we would love it if you followed us on social media and reviewed us on iTunes this has been Contact Mike this episode, this episode ends, ends. now. now. Mm, yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.